Hello and welcome back to All My Darlings, where we are reading Harp Song for a Radical, The Life and Times of Eugene Victor Debs by Marguerite Young. We are on page 91, chapter 29. Um, this is also coinciding with um, the read-along on Blue Sky with Paper Pills and others. Um, so, hope you're joining us. If you're coming from there, welcome. Um, I'm, I hope this uh, podcast is helping you follow along with the group read. It's been a lot, it always is a lot of fun with um, doing one of Paper Pills' book reads, so feel free to join in on um, more of them. Uh, we're on chapter 29. John, and this is a longer chapter. John Jacob Astor, who, having escaped the butcher's trade, lived in his own great castle, or many castles, as the landlord of New York, while Ling lining his pockets by foreclosures of mortgages on other men's estates when the borrowers, borrowers had outreached themselves and who by unremitting collection of rents from poor tenants mainly, mainly the Irish immigrants living in the mud hovels in New York and mud holes under the sidewalks and who was also a many-wheeled and many-cogged money machine with a Midas touch turning lead and dust into gold. In 1848, the hog-headed fat man, his chin hanging in folds and spilling like tallow over his shirt front, the wick of his spirit burning low, had given up the hog's ghost, had sunk into his grave as water to water and dust to dust, had expired as one who had contributed vastly to the doomed diminishment of the beavers in the beaver world, where the cooperative beavers, according to Indian legend, had caused the upheavals of the waters of creation when they went to sleep in great lakes spilling over into rivers and streams and lakes, watering this earth as they passed into their last sleep, from which the dead bodies of these herb-eating animals would awaken the form of islands, covered with grasses and cherry and aspen and other trees of their diet, trunk and branch and seeds and flowers and fruits and pots, as they had eaten also wild beans and berries and wild rose bushes, both bushes and thorns, and reeds and stalks of corn, and ears of corn, which they had used to hedge their places of refuge under the water, under the ice. A beaver, whose thirty-six miles long, had turned into a beaver island, even as other enormous beavers had turned into other islands, according to the red men, who were being driven toward extinction by wave after wave of white settlers, and whose own islands, where they might find sanctuary, were being continually, rapidly reduced in size and number, so that the feathered man in flight might soon be lucky if he could find one island to stand on with only one leg. The other leg lifted as he must go on and on searching for a place, an earthly paradise to which the dead beaver would return as from sleep to life. Now in this remote wilderness, regaining his health, which he had nearly lost while visiting other marshlands, Brother Wilhelm Wittling, wearing a beaver hat tinted with red by the delusive sun, which should so soon be pale as the moon as the ice formed, must have seemed like some old beaver king of the beaver worker's crew come back to life and with intensive intensity of purpose. What if there were those critics of his who would not give a beaver's dam for any beaver's dam built by this uncrowned beaver king who had no desire for martyrdom, but was doing a beaver's work? with his hands and his feet, and was not ready to lie down in the mud and let the waters roll over him, over him and the ice form. As to the beaver skin, which was the eternal remnant and could never be replaced when it was gone, that which the red men had cherished as part of their harmony and economy, provider of their food and conserver of their land, never needlessly killing one and never without ritualistic apology to him, 
It had been transformed by short-sighted, unthinking beaver agents into coins of silver and coins of gold for the sake of mercantile interests when the bales of the dried-out washed clean hides of these cooperative union brothers with their red rodents' hair had been sent by clipper ships from the new world to the old to be stitched into such headpieces as the continental cocked hat, the navy cocked hat, the army cocked hat, the clerical, the Wellington, the Napoleonic, the Paris bow, styles familiar to a semi-orphan child whose mysterious father had perished or disappeared in the great Russian snow where the winter wolves howled like the winter winds in Iowa. It was blotted out by snow gales, and where the light beams of the aurora borealis sweeping down from the North Pole made a crackling musical sound. Among the beaver brothers, most sought for was the white beaver, which could be made into a sacred robe for a priest or a wedding gown for the bride of an Indian brave, for whom the future would be spectral indeed, as these red orphans of the white government were driven farther and farther over the western plains with no refuge just as there was to be none for them where the gold and silver touched the cloud. There had always been the spirit-haunted sense in Indian life. Sometimes the entirety of creation seemed a white snow cloud out of which a voice spoke. All things had voices, birds and fishes and waters, and stones and clouds and trees and leaves and horses and dogs. According to a tale told by nomadic Indians, the red men, who were always in flight like birds, who had no safe sanctuary in the sky or on the ground, and perhaps this mythology of the red creation was tinged by the no longer recognizable theology of Catholic priests, clicking their rosary beads and playing their harps and conducting their masses to convert over to their faith the primordial worshippers of the great spirit who was not a body but a cloud. The original beaver, beaver builders had not only been as tall as men, but were able to communicate with each other with perfect lucidity, giving instructions for building their dams out of stones, pebbles, trees, bushes, twigs, corn. But like the great god who had split mankind into various tongues when they were building the tower from heaven to earth, which would be known as the Tower of Babel, an envious spirit coming out of the north had taken away the beaver language and had left them with only a cry, sounding like the cry of a baby lost in the dark, and it also reduced their size to their present size. The celebration of the beaver dam by Wilhelm Wittling with his rodents here. Okay, that just gives me a pause because... Wait, wait, wait. The most recent fossils found show that giant beavers went extinct towards the end of the Pleistocene, whatever, epoch about 10,000 years ago. While scientists aren't sure what caused their extinction, is almost certainly related to changing climate conditions, that period of many major, major megafauna, blah, blah, blah. So there were giant, this always gets me because they, um, yeah, and they have pictures of them. There are giant beavers or, uh, almost as tall as a uh, 2.5 meters long tail to snout. And it's almost as tall as a man. Like, they're not joking. And they have these different stories. Okay, all of this is going into because uh, I got fat. I love cryptids. Like, I love cryptids. I love that whole thing. Like, there's a big... I love the idea that there's extinct, or what we think are extinct, or what we think are unknown animals lurking around. Like, yeah, depths of the ocean, absolutely. But also, you know, on land, Bigfoot, Sasquatch, the gi giants, human giants. And there's an Indian tale, so I got I, I, I love all that stuff, and so I will watch 
documentary. Well, not documentaries, but anyway, shows about that stuff. But there's one where Indians have said there's a, there was a race of giants and that they fought them. And then one was an Indian, uh, uh, indigenous, uh, a, a chief. It was a woman. So I don't know if it's chiefess of an indigenous, indigenous nation in the Southwest who said, we not only fought them, they had red hair and we kept their hair as, you know, as I'm going to say a trophy, but, you know, because of scalping and stuff. But anyway, so there's trophies, there's artifacts of, of, I did this. And so she pointed to her traditional uh, regalia where it, it's here. Like, this is the red hair that we took from them. This has been passed down this whole time to show that we fought these giants. I find that story fascinating and then so like things like this like you know, there's these giant beavers and that the that has worked into the indigenous nations folklore and some of their folklore as far as you know stories about them and be, yeah but those creatures really did exist and 10,000 years ago like we were definitely there too so um I just find all of it really fascinating I love that kind of stuff the celebration of the beaver dam by Wilhelm Wittling with his rodent's hair gleaming red in the delusive light of the winter sun had been the gathering of the members at a great banquet with roast pig and cheese and bread and apples and wine for everyone, and music provided by a flutist blowing on his pipe, producing flute sounds like the cries of a migratory bird passing over a sea of clouds. The harmony in which Brother Wittling had left his people had soon broken again into chaos. It was now that, having failed to place his matrix and build his moral dam to hold back the selfish waters of individualism, which would spill over because of many inherent flaws caused by compromises with self-centered minds, other than his own, which was surely centered on the otherness of his maps and charts for the otherness of a universal brotherhood, that of the utopian society which he should have left in a galaxy of stars, Brother Vittling, with hope and despair burning in his bosom, the, doubt, the hope, no doubt, brighter than despair, had been able to cross over to Novu. I think it, it an A-U-V-O-O. Novu. He had been drawn to Novu by two magnets. One was caused by his fascination with the legendary city on the high bluffs over the Mississippi, to which the prophet Joseph Smith at its zenith had attracted a population of 20,000 living souls, who were in communal brotherhood and sisterhood not only with themselves, but with those who were dead, those who had died in this temporary Zion or earthly paradise, those who had died in distant places, likely as not when they were either on the road coming here or were dreaming of coming here. If they did not hasten here while they could, if they delayed one day longer than necessary to come upon the immigrant boat or Mormon version of a Noah's Ark, then they might be delayed in reaching this place while they were still alive, for it was apparently God's opaque intention to drive the Atlantic up so that it would be impossible to cross that sea of mud where would be revealed ancient ships which had gone down, Phoenician, Egyptian, and Grecian, and all kinds of boats, which had sunken in the long ago to the ocean's floor because not under the protection of the hand of the Lord. Even after the murder of Joseph Smith, This is one of the longer chapters. When he had known that Illinois was not his Zion, Brother Brigham Young had tried briefly to carry out the specific will of the Lord by finishing the temple that the martyred hero had envisioned as that which would be the most beautiful theological building in the world. But the location of the communal worship of ancient gods who were not the gods recognized by the surrounding land-hungry gentiles 
the limestone blocks with the large sunstones raised into place upon the shoulders of workers, the trumpet stones and capstones, the pavements and mosaics, and the roof overlooking the Mississippi for miles and miles, so that any boatman might see the figure of the golden angel Moroni topping its spire. The massive pillars and carved doorways to a vast interior, interior where were carved a stone basin and oxen for a permanent baptismal font for babes. Many beauties in stone and their reflections and clouds have been smashed or destroyed by genteel or godless farmers, while the Mormon worshippers of Moses and Muhammad have been driven away. Farmers had carted away the wreckages of blasted stones, so that on back alley cow sheds or sheep sheds or in walls made of blasted stone and rubble or in the foundations of old outhouses which had a lonely lurching look as if the wind had blown them where they were could be seen the eye of a fragmented god perhaps an ear perhaps a curl perhaps a bird's bill what was left as a sign of the mormon passage when the temple was burned to the ground by vandals was little but the fallen capital representing the large many-rayed face of the sun shedding its divine favor under the horns of plenty which were held out in the hands of that provider who was a god dwelling among men. It was said by George Miller, one of the Latter-day Saints, whose loyalty was not given to Brigham Young as new head after the murder of Joseph Smith, that in relation to the original founder whose church had been originally founded, according to some of its critics, on sand, nothing but continually shifting sand at the edge of the waters in upper New York State, that the new leader bore the same relationship to the old as that of a toad to an ox. Oh my God, her sentences are so long. <laughs> They're wonderful, but they are so long. Perhaps, however, in the unknowable years lying ahead, it would seem that Brigham Young was the solid plodding ox by comparison with whom the club-footed Joseph Smith would seem the toad with the toadstone gleaming like a jewel in his forehead, as long ago it was an ever-metaphoric cave where were hidden the sacred scrolls of the papyrus made from the flax, which was the color of his hair, and which had been gathered and beaten and spun in ancient Egyptian mills, and had the power to transform itself into a golden bird, or an ox, or a lamb. For his had been the pluteristic, pluralistic art of infinite camouflage. When forced to leave Nauvoo because of threats of, few, of new murders and mayhem, such has been had been dealt out to the prophet who had been killed as if he were Cain, but who was Abel, the slain god of orchards and fields, it became apparent that Brigham Young was preparing to leave, for he and his Mormon followers had gathered the last crop of the pale winter wheat and had not sown another crop, and all that they had built up together had been lost by forced sale or had been abandoned when there was no buyer at any price for the beehive that could not be transported by wagons so that the beehive people would have to produce another hive in which to spin the honey of the sun they knew not where. He who was preparing with the majority of his followers to cross the Mississippi in this darkest time of the year had heard from one of his disciples that it did seem a pity they should have to leave the beautiful and not quite completed edifice, which was the temple to the moon and the sun, had answered that, yes, it was beautiful. But we have the satisfaction of taking the substance with us, leaving behind us only the shadow. There were those who generally but mistakenly believed that Brigham Young and the Mormons would someday return to the place of burned-out barns or ruined choirs. Among the healing arts that Joseph Smith and Brigham Young had been privileged to enjoy were the curing of a dying man or woman by the laying on of hands or the laying on of a mantle which would take away the illness of the body without inhabiting the lining or the folds of the mantle which also had its shadow. The shadow or astral mantle which had been that of Joseph Smith 
when he was still alive but could not make the journey by sky or water or land, had winged its way to the bodies of dying disciples and had spread itself out over them so that those who had been pale and withering with the fires of life spirits about to go out of them had been suddenly flushed with red and gold and had lived. Nauvoo, Hebrew for pleasant land, once was an Indian village, which a white captain named James White had put under his belt in exchange for 200 sacks of green and red and gold corn, and which had first been called Venus and then had been absorbed by commerce and had been called Commerce City. Its name when Joseph Smith in flight with his disciples from real and potential murder in Missouri had purchased the hills and the flatlands for the establishment of his community of saints, who had been tillers of the soil and worshipped the pagan gods of sun and moon. The crippled prophet with the flax gold hair had been likened to Apollo, had been occupied by the remnant of Carian community in 1849, the year after the burning of the temple by incendiaries, who had carted away the movable stones and wagons without respect to the eyes of fallen gods flashing among the ruins, the year after the hesitant beginning of the gold rush, rush which had quickly accelerated into floods of gold seekers in search of gold and metallic form, Brigham Young and his followers had turned in the long, long migrations in which many had died and been buried along the way without their coats, for no doubt God, who was the great weaver, had covered the dead with new coats in which they would be seen on the day of resurrections, which was always at hand, and the old coats and other pieces of garments must be used to protect the living. Signs had been used to mark the places where the Mormon dead were buried, signs which themselves were stolen or knocked down or would be eroded with time. The second magnet, which had drawn the would-be utopia finder to Nauvoo, was that it was where the sun god had fallen and the Mormons had been blamed for every natural disaster there, including gods pitching with lightning forks the hay into the haystacks and causing them to burn in the midst of the flood. Their light, seen for miles like the lights of a fallen sun, was also the community of the remnant Icarians, who in melancholy flight from their own ruin in Texas, had moved into some of the ruined buildings in the deserted village, which could not fail to be haunted by the fact that it was the lost utopia of beehive supernaturalists, given over to a higher rationality than that of merely mortal men, and seemingly unlike the followers of Etienne Cabet, the French author of Voyage to Icaria, Icaria, whose wings had already been burned in the Texas experiment. So they could not get off the ground here where they were fallen and were to find in the conduct of their economy no harmony, but discord and dissension caused by rivalries of clamorous egos. Brother Vitling had considered for a time putting his Iowa forces into an intricately interlocking combination with the followers of Cabet's fictional voyage to Icaria, of which this cooperative brotherhood which maintained the family system was plowed by the males and not by the mares and not by their three-year-olds running ahead of them, plucking up clods as in some of the German colonies as well as the farms owned by individual taskmasters in the capitalistic world never did get around to the establishment of a relationship of his utopia with that utopia. Both dying like seeds in the pod. The ghost town was three years old when Brother Vitling came. France had not permitted Cabet with his enormous Icarian following to try out his possible, possibly screwball ideas there. As Robert Owen had purchased sight unseen the Rapide Acres at the old Harmony, which was to become the short-lived New Harmony on the Wabash, so it was on his recommendation that Cabet had purchased sight unseen in 1847, the acres along the Red River in Texas, where the father of world socialism had once dreamed of founding a cooperative community, by which to show mankind a better way to a better world, where all men should love their neighbors as they love themselves, and there should be no fences dividing the property of one man from another man.
an unfortunate choice as the agent of Cabot's dreams, Cabot's dreams, the Texas Badlands, was where Cabot had placed his money, where the sellers had laid out the Icarian acres in a pattern of checkerboard lots, one square communal and one square capitalistic, and either conveniently marked by red and black, so that it was impossible for an Icarian to drive the cattle home to their shelters at night without stepping from communism into capitalism, the brush where the brigand brigands waited with their brands, and there were also poisonous fevers killing many men. The surviving Icarians, those who had neither died nor elected to return to France, had come up the Mississippi from New Orleans on the steamboat American Eagle, and with a month after that March voyage against rough winds and high tides, had organized their version of the fic fictional Icaria, where those who had agreed to stay on had agreed to make a second attempt in the conduct of the philanthropy Philanstery, Philanstery, under a written constitution which should be have which should have prepared them for the leaves and flowers and fruits upon the branches of apple and cherry and peach and pear trees in April and May, and not the trees dripping with bloody leaves and flowers and fruits and burdened by the bodies of the dead, as if in a reminder of the Mormon flight from new flights of murder should they remain in this blasted Zion where neighbors resented their strange allegiances to the fallen gods of sun and moon. Mrs. Joseph Smith, the prophet's wife, with her babe who had escaped slaughter by Herod among the trampled reeds, had refused to accept Brigham Young as her dead-to-husband substitute, and had objected to polygamy as a practice which could not be divine, and had let, held on to the sacred scrolls and the false mummies of ancient Egyptian, Egyptian saints who, brown as tobacco leaves spotted with gold, had been housed in Joseph's church and had accused this would-be protector of stealing away her beloved former spouse's wool cape, that which had used to have a flying propensity of its own. Huh. That's all interesting. I know nothing about, next to nothing about the Mormons. But that's all pretty fair. That's all pretty interesting. All right. Oh, good stuff. And you can see how, like, Iowans are, a lot of them, except for the Mormons, of course, in, in Utah, how they would, like, not own any of this history <laughs> about coming out of their state. Uh, excuse me, and the violent opposition to it, always, to this idea that, hey, people could work together to benefit, oh, I don't know, themselves. Um, yeah, that's not a thing, anyway, uh, or was always uh, violently fought against. All right. I uh, hope you're doing well with the uh, read-along um, on Blue Sky. Hope to hear from you there. Uh, thank you for listening. Hope you're well. Bye.